experience. Uh, many of you know that I am a campus minister, so I work with college students at Bridgewater State University, uh, and I try to help them consider what their lives would look like if they followed Jesus. And what that means is that I am a professional in rejection. So I would drive this fall uh, 45, 50 minutes in the morning to Bridgewater State, feeling terribly alone. And prior to that, for some reason, every time I woke up every morning this fall, I have never experienced such anxiety. And it's hard to pinpoint why or where or how uh, this started, but I would wake up, maybe some of you have had this experience, with stress, like deeply rooted, like a knot in my back. And I would wake up and say, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get out of my bed. Chris and I invested in a heated blanket this year. That was both the best and worst decision of our entire life because I never want to leave my bed. One of my students said really hilariously this year, she said, if it was constitutional to marry my bed, I would. And I agree with her. <laughs> so I would wake up under my heated blanket and have to drive alone to campus where I felt very alone, uh, being a professional receiver of rejection, having students text me and then not show up, um, trying to gather students, trying to talk to students about something that is completely not on their mind. So at the risk of being really self-indulgent slash really vulnerable, uh, I put together a string of words from my journal entries this fall. So most of us expect to write our diary and then it's only when we're dead that someone would read it, or when you get the opportunity to preach and then you get to say it to a group of people. So these are some lines from my personal diary, and they are melodramatic, it's okay to laugh. Everything is going wrong. I'm walking around with tears behind my eyes every day. Maybe it's the fact that it has rained consistently for the past three days. I've allowed myself to numb through distraction. Every spare moment, I am scrolling through my phone, struggling with why this season has been so filled with anxiety and lack of joy, frantic and full of worry. Can I get an amen from anyone who may have felt that way this fall? I don't know why it is that particularly this fall it was so hard for me, uh, but in regards to my own connection to God, I felt a lot like Anne Sexton in this quote she wrote. Uh, it was a letter to a friend. This is the great poet who I don't think would have outed herself at all as a follower of Jesus. And she writes, yes, it is time to think about Christ again. I keep putting it off. I love that. I wandered around all fall, stressed, anxious, frantic, uh, going to bed really late, waking up really early, and going the next day after the next day after the next day. And I think for us, uh, I, I'm sure the particulars are different for you, uh, but maybe many of us in the room can identify with that feeling of anxiety. And certainly the scrolling through the phones, um, shout out to my millennials, like that is our main form of numbing, uh, is our Instagram feeds and Facebook and constantly checking. I just didn't want to deal with what was going on internally and in my head and in my heart. Um, but I think there's a problem for us, especially those in the room who identify as Christians, is that when we live our lives uh, professing to follow a living God, and yet we live our days not interacting with that God, I think we become functional atheists. Let me say that again. When we 
portray and call ourselves to be a Christian. We show up on a Sunday morning. Uh, we believe that we're following this God, uh, this God that has set himself apart, not as a mute idol, not as a God that doesn't speak, but as the living God, the God who speaks. And yet we live our days with such worry, anxiety, and fear that we never communicate with or experience this God. We're living as though we are atheists, though Christian in name, our lives might not actually reflect any sort of interaction with this living, speaking, loving God. And I think that's a problem that Advent shows us a solution to, and the intimacy of Advent uh, sort of intersects. So we come back to this beautiful quote. If God wanted to speak to our minds alone, Mary would have written a book and not delivered a baby. And so this morning, I want us all to consider what does it mean, whether you identify as a Christian or not in this room, that God has come, God is coming, and God will come again, not as a set of ideas to consent to, but as a person with whom we can interact daily. Would you stand for the reading of the word this morning? From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So though I read that out loud, this is actually a song, and it's a song that belongs to Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and so these words are being spoken over his son, who is just eight days old at this time. If you read through the first few chapters of Luke, there are two songs. First, there is Mary's song, and then there is Zechariah's song. And what you need to know about Zechariah is that he and Elizabeth, like many biblical characters, were super old when the Lord visited them and said, you're going to have a baby. And like many, maybe, of us who are old and certainly biologically past a certain age of possibility, that's ludicrous. And so when God showed up and told Elizabeth and Zechariah, you will have a baby, Zechariah laughed and was like, hell no, that's impossible. And the angel who was delivering this message said, from now on, you will be silent and Zechariah became deaf and mute. Aren't we glad that God doesn't seem to work like that anymore in our lives? That'd be really intense to be silenced by the Lord, like you of little faith. And so Zechariah, before this moment, is deaf um, and mute. He cannot speak. So John the Baptist uh, is this baby who is going to prepare the way for Jesus. And when he is born, eight days later, they're trying to figure out what should we name our son, which in this culture uh, has very high meaning and high value. And the scripture says, uh, let me see if I can get that in front of me from Luke 1. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit uh, was upon Zechariah and he prophesied. So this man who has been silent, he has been mute throughout the birth or the 
the growing of his baby in the womb, he suddenly bursts into song. He doesn't even speak. He bursts into this amazing, beautiful, prophetic song over his newborn son. And he says, no, we'll name him John, and he will prepare the way for the Savior of the world. So let me just read his words once again, and I want you to think about a man who has been completely silent. His mouth has been shut, and his first words are bursting into song. And he says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. He's speaking this to a community who has been waiting and longing and hoping to hear from God for literally hundreds of years. I think that puts into perspective any time I feel like God is not speaking into my life. There were 400 years uh, before the last prophecy of the Old Testament and then the first of the New Testament. 400 years of seeming defeat, failure, and silence. And Zechariah bursts into song over his son. What he says is quite interesting, that this Jesus who John is preparing the way for will bring the knowledge of salvation and the experience of forgiveness. Had he only stopped at the knowledge of salvation, then we would only have a half quote on this little page that you received today. That there's a knowledge that God is putting in our heads about what it means to be saved and in right relationship with him. But it is not fulfilled without the experience of grace and of forgiveness. This poem is about the big things. It's about the kings and the patriarchs and the prophecies of old being fulfilled in this baby Jesus. And yet it's also about the particulars of a man and a woman and their child. And that, for me, sums up how God interacts with us. There's a corporate story that's being told about our humanity and the divine. There is a corporate story being told that God, as Andrew preached last week, is our hope in light of the events in Ferguson, in light of our economic disparity. Uh, Hope has come and is coming. As N.T. Wright says, uh, when we look into the fog of the future, The only thing that differentiates Christians from other uh, systems of thought or belief is that it's not just us wandering into the fog, but it's Jesus coming towards us out of the fog. And he's coming to make everything right, to set everything in its right place. So there's a huge corporate story going on. But I think we can miss the intimacy of this moment is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are having a baby And this baby has a high calling given by the God of the universe. There is such intimacy in that moment, in them knowing that God deeply cares about the particulars of their own life set at the backdrop of this epic story that's going down. It's funny, when Andrew asked me to consider preaching on this passage, I was a little confused Because when I read that passage from Luke, I don't immediately jump to, oh yes, the intimacy of Christ. It's like not even about Jesus. It's said over John the Baptist, so it's like a third-party thing. Uh, But the more I've sat and let this scripture wash over me, uh, I think this poem helps us understand that God is not coming as a set of ideas, but God is coming in a 
in a presence, in a being, in a person uh, with whom we can interact. Again, the scripture says that it's by God's mercy that he is giving us the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sin, that whoever this God is is going to show us how to live a path of peace. So there's a, a quote from Scott Cairns in a book that Chris and I have been reading every morning for Advent. And it says, What is the nature of this gift we have received, this gift we hope yet to receive? We have come to understand it. Have we come to understand it as a proposition? Or do we welcome it as a person? Is the one we call our Lord Jesus Christ a lovely idea? Or is he the lover of humankind? Zechariah was silent and he burst into song because God's presence unlocked his mouth and let him speak over his baby boy. It's a story that is hard for us to grasp with all of its history and complexity, and yet it's a story that we all know deep in our hearts, um, that there is a God who loves us and wants to be known by us. Like we sang this morning, he has drawn near, and now will we draw near to him? So let's go back to my frantic fall, feeling alone, feeling isolated, I had this horrible day. It was a Wednesday, and Chris and I lead a home group, so a group of sanctuary folks come to our house every other week on a Wednesday night uh, to read scripture, to do life together. And on this particular day, uh, I was recruiting for a conference with my students, and I was feeling completely rejected. I I kept offering these free scholarships. I'm like, there's nothing in your way to get to this conference. I'm giving you the money. You know you want to go. And I'm on the phone with these students, and each one of them is making lame excuses. And it sounds really petty, but in the moment when you feel like your identity is wrapped up in whether the student comes to this particular conference or not, uh, I felt utterly rejected. The day had gone wrong. Everything had gone wrong. And so... It is an hour, it's six o'clock, and home group starts at seven, and I am in the fetal position on my bed, weeping. So it's Wednesday night, people are coming into my home in an hour. We're like cleaning the spittle off of our sink. We're like turning on uh, nice music, lighting candles to cover the smell of this mouse that keeps running around our house and other things. And Chris is doing all of these things, and I am in my bed in the fetal position, weeping and like having the most epic pity party uh, in the world, just feeling like totally rejected and alone. And then it's 6.30 and 6.45, and do you ever know that moment when all of a sudden you allow yourself to cry and it's just not going away? It's just gonna keep happening for a really long time. I couldn't control it. Um, I had no idea what to do. It's 6.45 and the doorbell rings and I'm still in the fetal position on my bed crying. And Chris comes in and he's like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You have to get the door, but I just leave me in here. So literally, I am crying. I'm in the fetal position. I hear feet coming up the stairs of my apartment. And not only is it people coming into my home, but it's new people, people I've never met before. If any of you know me, I love hosting. I love everything to be comforting and welcoming and set up for you. And so they come in and I I hear these voices that are unfamiliar to me say, oh, where's Aaron? And I'm like, (laughs) oh God. And they're walking to my house and Chris is like, um, she's going to be with us in a couple minutes. And our house is not, it's just a one floor apartment. There's no upstairs, downstairs. There's no quiet place for me to hide. So this is a mess. So I 
don't know what to do. The only person I can think of to text is Corey Mook. So I start frantically texting Corey, and I'm like, I'm weeping. People are in my house. I don't know them. Have you ever been in this position before? What do I do? I was just like, ah. And so through text, Corey is like ministering to me. She's like, it's okay. Maybe this is a vulnerable moment that you just need to embrace, and you need to go out there. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. So take a moment, calm myself down. Puffy-eyed, I go out there, I meet these lovely people who are in my home for the first time, uh, and the night goes on. But later that night, I am still wrestling with and frustrated and feeling utterly spent and emotionally exhausted. And this is the part in the story where if you're here this morning um, and you have never connected with God before, you're probably tempted to write me off as a hormonal lunatic, and that's okay. Um, But all I'm sharing is my experience. So it's after home group, um, God has graciously helped me to get it together. And to be honest, and I just shared with these people, like, it's been a really crappy day. Sorry, like puffy, red, swollen face. And I go back to my bed. Chris is cleaning up. I think Chris is the true hero in this story, if we can just say. He, like, set the whole night up, dealt with his emotional wife, and then sent me back to bed. So I'm in bed, and again in the fetal position, this time clutching my holding cross. I'm like a religious zealot. So this is my, this is just like a tool that helps me pray. I don't know, it's tactile. And so I'm sitting in bed with my holding cross. I'm like, Jesus, Jesus. Like just so upset with this fall and how my life has gone thus far. Um, And in the middle of that moment, as I'm crying out to God, like, would you show up for me right now? Would you tell me what I need to hear? I get this overwhelming sense of peace, and my eyes are closed, and suddenly Jesus is in my bedroom with me, and he crouches down next to me on my side of the bed, and he looks into my face, and he says, I know, I know. And I cried (laughs) again. I know. In those two words and in that intimate moment of feeling so met by God, there was so much unsaid from that moment. Aaron, I know the rejection you feel. I know how it feels for people that you've trusted to walk away. (laughs) I know how it feels to suffer. I know, I identify with you, I am with you. And this time, the tears were just slow and steady and such a profound sense of being known in that moment. I didn't need more information. I didn't need a theological construct to place this experience in. Um, I didn't need a sermon to help me understand that. I needed the living God to speak to me in that moment and thank God that he spoke. What's crazy is that in preparing for this sermon, I was shopping in Down City yesterday and I'm in Craftland and I get a text on my phone and it's a good friend of mine, Brad, and he's been praying that morning and he just texts me. He's like, this is weird, but I was praying and all of a sudden I had this overwhelming sense of God's love for you. And I remember this story that you had mentioned to me of him sitting and crouching down next to your bedside and saying, I know. 
And I just want you to remember that like, you're his little girl and he loves you. And in all caps, I was like, oh my God, I'm preaching on that tomorrow. Like, do you know? Like how amazing is that, that, that God in his mercy, as that scripture says, in his sweetness, reminded me right before I spoke with you all of this story um, and confirmed it through a friend who's totally unrelated. Um, God knows you. Do you guys know that? Like God knows you and he longs to be with you. Again, you could write me off as like, wow, you were like totally emotional and this is probably a hallucination. But for me, like as I read scripture, as I, as I study theology, uh, it is not okay for me to operate like a functional atheist if I believe that the God of the universe has saved me and longs to be with me. If I believe that's true, that must mean that God's presence is available for me all the time and that it's up to me to draw near to him and to be in that moment of need to recognize, I need you, God. And what, what I think is amazing is that oftentimes when we ask God to speak, we want very specific things like, where do I go for this master's program? And how much money are you going to give me to survive the next month? But time and time and again in faith communities who are willing to listen to God, he just repeats the same thing. I know you. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. Those are the things that we need to hear. But we are so frantic and busy and distracted that we never slow down enough to hear them. Am I right? God's presence is available to us. He is a person. He is not a set of ideas to consent to. Dear God, we know we don't need more of those. We live in an information age where we are bombarded by information. What we need is the person and the presence of Christ with us daily to say, I know. God sent his son to identify with our human experience. God took on flesh to say, I know. I know what it feels like to have so much responsibility, you just want to curl up and watch Netflix all day and ignore it. Like, I know what it feels like to feel betrayed by your friends and unlovable. He knows. And I'm so thankful that in that moment, he spoke that to me. You are as close to God as you want to be. You are as close to God as you want to be. That might sound really offensive to some of you this morning. And by that, I don't mean try harder if you've been trying. But what I do mean is that we're told in scripture that God has made himself available. There is a, there's a new covenant that we have entered with God. Uh, I just want to quickly recall the words from Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That was a prophecy about Jesus coming, and Jesus has already come. There is a new covenant in which the law that required blood sacrifice, it required purity and righteousness that no one could attain. When Jesus came, he fulfilled that law. And it says the law is now written on our hearts. 
which means that we don't need to go looking all of these other places, but we just need to come back to the law that is written on our hearts, the law of grace and mercy, the law of hope for the future. Like, how often do we uh, quickly forget these things and look elsewhere for that fulfillment? But the law is written on our hearts. There is no need to jump through hoops to get to God anymore. He has drawn near to us. Now we need to draw near to him. So quickly, uh, I'd like to highlight just a few postures we're quick to have with God and what it means to have that intimacy with God. If the law is written on our hearts, if God dwells inside those who believe in him, uh, then the ultimate goal is to be with him is to live our lives with God in this intimacy. But often, the way we view God is going to impact how we interact with him. Uh, This whole sermon, by the way, is like a promotion for two books that are in the back of the sanctuary. One is Quiet by A.J. Sherrill, and one is With. Um, And actually, I think I may have missed... Yeah, I would just like to read this quote from A.J. Sherrill from his book Quiet. He says, Every moment of every day... The most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. Yet in almost every moment of every day, we remain unaware of this generous gift. If it's true that every moment of every day, God is with us, then we need to reorient our lives around that fact. We ought to reorder our days. Like the way that the sanctuary has changed and we slow down in Advent and we sit with our thoughts. Like, if it's true that God's presence is available to us all the time, we ought to reorder the way we live. So really quickly, here are a few ways that we posture ourselves with God. Some of us in the room live our lives from God. God is the great cosmic slot machine. And we pray to him for job security, financial security, for our children's safety. Uh, God, please give me X. We live life from God to take from him. I see this in many of my friends who, are, who do not identify as Christians, is that when anything goes wrong in their lives, they're quick to turn to the God they denied yesterday. Like, we live life from God. We will take from him when we please. Some of us in the room live life over God. God is too emotional or too irrational to believe in. So we'll draw from Christianity a few principles that make sense to live our lives by, and then we'll plug and play. We don't actually need to interact with this God. We can just take what's useful and live our life over God. And we are in control, living our lives uh, with whatever is useful and ignoring whatever is not. Some of us, and this one hits home for me big time, is we live our life for God. God has given us a great mission, and this is true. But our entire life is We just got to get it done. So we're going to live our life for God. We are going to do justice. We're going to act with mercy. Uh, We're going to walk humbly. My entire life, I'm a minister, is, that's my, my job title. Aaron's life is for God. Everything that I do is for God. And yet I can so often miss actually being with him. I can lead a Bible study. I can talk to a student about Jesus. But is that coming out of a place of deeply rooted intimacy? That's a question that haunts me, and I have to ask myself a lot. And finally, some of us are living life under God. We live in fear of this great puppeteer. We live in fear of this God who might 
silence us or make our mouths shut up. We live in fear of a God who might smite us. Uh, We live in fear of a God who would be disappointed with us. And so we live with our heads down and we walk around hoping to please God by the actions that we do, but never talking with him or interacting with him. So these are four postures that I'm sure many of us in the room can identify with. Life over, life from, life for, uh, life under. And yet life with God, this intimacy, you can see on the banners to your right and your left, intimacy. Life with God is a whole other ballgame. In his book, With, aptly put, Sky Jathani writes, So we should not be surprised to discover that when God desired to restore his broken relationships with people, he sent his son to dwell with us. His plan to restore creation was not to send a list of rules and rituals to follow, life under God, nor was it the implementation of useful principles, life over God. He didn't send a genie to grant us our desires, life from God, nor did he give us a task to accomplish, life for God. Instead, God himself came to be with us, to walk with us once again, as he had done in Eden in the beginning. Jesus entered into our dark existence to share our broken world, to illuminate a different way forward. His coming was a sudden and glorious catastrophe of good. Life with God. I think we avoid it because it's hard. I think we avoid it because it can make us feel foolish. We sit in our rooms alone asking God to show up and to speak, and we sit in silence wondering if we're really crazy. I think it's why it's so easy to go to the other postures, because that's something within our control. I can live my life for God. I can live my life under him and never have to deal with the mystery, uh, the cosmic reality of who God is. But this morning, we're being invited to slow down and to reorder our days around the fact that the God of the universe loves you so much that he did show up in a way we could understand as a human being who lived and breathed and pooped and walked around, (laughs) right? Can I get an amen? Weird to think about, but very true. The intimacy of God. We can identify with him. He knows. This is the gospel that we preach, is that our lives are not about ourselves, but are about being known and loved by this God and being sent to do what John the Baptist did, to prepare the way for others to know and be known and to be loved by this God, to be saved from our depravity, to be saved from the stuff we so tightly hold on to. Uh, Andrew was telling me that Harper is at this age, his baby, uh, where she will have something really good, like a toy, and then there's another toy that she wants, but she doesn't know how to grasp at the other toy with the current toy in her hand. And so she's like, uh, like, I want it, but I, we need to take whatever it is that we are so desperately holding on to and let it go and trust that the gift that God is laying out for us is way more life-giving, way more fulfilling than anything that we're clutching on to. So what is it that you're holding on to today? Is it your own sense of self-security? Is it your own arrogance of thinking that this stuff is petty and a waste of time? Is it your own desire to just keep going, going, and achieving and achieving and never to slow down because you might feel like a failure if you do? What is it that you're holding on to when the greatest gift is being extended to us and we are not letting go of it to receive it? 
I think this God that has opened up Zechariah's mouth and burst through with song, he is a good God. He can be trusted. He has met us where we're at and he loves us too much to keep us there. We know that. He's waiting for us to reach out to him. He's waiting to crouch down by your bedside and say whatever it is that's going to unlock something in your heart and draw you nearer to him. For me, it was, I know, Aaron, I know. I have been there and I am with you still and I am coming again to make it all right. He is our friend. When God stops becoming a set of ideas and becomes your friend, friends, that is intimacy. So if you're in the room this morning and you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, but this morning something's stirring in your heart, like, I want to know that intimacy with God. I want to know what it means to love and be loved and to know and be known. Please come and talk with me, pray with me, my husband Chris, um, and someone else will be in the prayer corner for you to pray with and to process. What would it mean that God has actually drawn near to you and now it's time for you to draw near to him? And for those who identify as Christians, there are some really practical ways to reorder our days. I'm just going to lay them out. This is the unsexy part of the sermon. Is that we need to start our days with the Lord. <laughs> I recently just did a 30-30 thing. It was 30 days with my phone shut off the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes of every single day. It was so freeing. I didn't have to scroll and have anxiety about how amazing other people's lives were and how crappy my own was on any given day. Uh, and instead, I used that time to just sit in stillness and quiet and to hear from the God who speaks. Some of you are moms, and that's like not possible at all. <laughs> you don't get that luxury. What if once a season you paid a babysitter or asked the church to pay it for you and you went on a retreat for a day? and you journaled out and you sat with God and you processed all of the different things that have been happening in your life. A quiet day to hear from God. A quiet day to be met in the intimacy of who he is. And the questions on the back, these are great spiritual disciplines. It's an examine, you're examining your life. Where have I seen God? Where have I experienced him and where have I missed him? You can ask yourself that on a daily basis as a way to reorient our days to God because we know that the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. So do not delay to reorder your days around the intimacy of God that is so readily available to you. In a moment, we're going to take some silence. And silence is uncomfortable for us. It brings up all the things we've been ignoring and all the things we've been shoving down. But we're gonna take a moment to sit and to acknowledge, do I believe that the God I serve is a real person three persons in one that is ready to speak to me. And if it's helpful, you can use the second question on the, on the piece of paper to reflect and to ask God, God, would you speak to me in this moment? Like, what are the words I need to hear to know that you know me and you love me? I'll close with a poem, as I am known to do. We begin to understand that the flesh he becomes is our own flesh. Of a given morning, may you yet apprehend his body utterly near to you. On a given morning, we may yet lean into his embrace, accepting the gift and numberless gifts thereafter.
Let me pray for us and then we'll sit in silence for a moment. God, thank you that I don't need to invite you to be here because your presence is full in this place. God, thank you for the ways you've shown me what intimacy looks like with you this year. Um, and I pray for my brothers and sisters the same, that they would steal away quiet moments with you to know that the coming of your son and this season of Advent reminds us the intimacy that we get to have with you but so often ignore. God, slow us down. And may that intimacy with you just multiply into our marriages, into our relationships with our kids, with our friends, with our roommates. Would we experience a greater intimacy this year in Advent, God? So as we take a moment of silence to be obedient to you, Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you bring words and visions, uh, scripture to the minds of people sitting here? Uh, just show yourself to us, God, that we may worship you and know that you are God. In your name we pray, amen.